Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Okay, I think for this one, given the um, bald authors, it's a sign of their um, internal, you know, their cerebral virility. Um, but given the bald authors, a good question would be, can you name a famous biblical baldy? Oh, quick off the mark. You know, who, who was the, I, I think probably was the first one. I think yeah. so, yeah. Very good. Have a pierce for our transgressions. Mahaney is pretty bold as well, actually. Mahaney is quite bold, actually. Um, What would be... Okay, a question then entirely unrelated to either the author or the content. Um, Satan is sometimes known as Baalzebub or Beelzebub in the Bible. What does it mean, Beelzebub? That's first-hand. Yeah? What's Beelzebub mean? No, I'm afraid not. Sorry. There's another hand here somewhere. Yeah? No. What does Beelzebub mean? Very good. Lord of the Flies. Well done. For a bonus... Do you know why he's called Lord of the Flies? (laughs) It's because the Hebrew word, the word the Hebrews used for an idol was turd. And so Baalzebub was the one who attracted the most flies because he was the biggest turd of them all. That's why you don't get this kind of information for free elsewhere. There's a reason why I put the recording thing on. Okay, that's because they wanted to laugh at false gods and when you laugh at them like that, you know, it's not quite so attractive to worship them after that, is it? So anyway, okay, now in this, in this next session together, what we want to think about is we want to think about what the cross does to impact our lives. Okay, so what does the cross do to our doubts, our difficulties, to our motivation, to our evangelism, to our discipleship? Okay, that's the agenda for this afternoon. So what I want to do is start with a little ego trip for you. So, I want you to imagine that you're supreme chief of a remote little tribe and you've never heard of any system of belief or religion. You've never heard of Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, anything. And you've got to make up a god for your tribe in ten seconds. Go. You can be whatever you want. You can be a giant turnip and we're all soil. I don't know. Depends how much funny stuff you've been smoking. What is your God like? You can make him however you want. You can wipe out the universe and make it a private beach. You can... You can be God. Whatever you want. Okay. What's your God like? Anyone got a God yet? Yeah. A giant rock. You have been on the funny stuff. Okay. Yeah. Reverent, I like it. Yeah. Ooh. 
Man, it's freaky Bill and Exeter today, isn't it? You were out doing the questionnaire, were you? Anyone else? Is it just giant rocks we've got? What else we got? In control of stuff, yeah. Anyone else? You can't make up gods quicker than that. Come on. Come on, one more, yeah. All powerful, yeah. Now, with this kind of stuff, forget the real crazy lunatic fringe over there, but with most people, basically, that is how every human system of thought works and describes their gods. Basically, it's the sort of thing um, Sigmund Freud talked about. Um, for Freud, it was all, everything was about dads. So for him he said, you know, I want a dad, so I basically project my desire for a dad into, into heaven. And so he said, basically, what human beings do is we take things that we know and we just sort of pump them up and expand them cosmically into heaven. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah? So God is basically a projection of my kind of desires. So when I want to... Um, think about my God's power. He's powerful, he's in control. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, basically, I, I think of the most powerful thing I can imagine and then just keep pumping it up bigger and bigger so that basically my God is a sort of cosmic George Bush with a brain. Yeah? So, so, so you kind of imagine, you know, what do I want? Make it bigger. So Freud's right. That is exactly how human religion works. What is God like? Basically, me on cosmic steroids. But then comes the cross. And the cross is the nails down the blackboard to all those natural religions. See the cross. And all our expectations and presuppositions about what God might be like lie bleeding in the dust as we see a God who is entirely different to our expectations. I mean, this is not the God anyone imagined. So you remember, Adam went to the tree to get knowledge the tree of knowledge. And he got death. Christ went to the tree of the cross to get death. And he won knowledge of God for us. Because you see, the cross is not just about salvation. As God saves, we see he reveals himself. The cross is also revelation. In fact, the cross is the theatre of God's glory. The deepest revelation of who he really is. See, there on the cross, you see the glory, the wisdom, the righteousness, the justice, the power, the love of God. And none of it is anything like what you'd expect. So the cross is the scandal that damns everything you'd think to be true. I mean, would you ever have imagined 
the almighty Lord of hosts making the definitive display of his power by having himself beaten and nailed to a cross between common criminals. Would you ever have thought there is anything powerful about that? And yet, as he is hanging there, he is crushing the serpent, tying up the strong man, driving out the prince of this world, overcoming the spiritual forces that oppose us, crushing death and removing it, triumphing over all of them. Would you ever have thought that a man bleeding on a cross was loving? Yet it is the definition of love. Would you ever have looked at the total miscarriage of justice that was his trial and imagined that actually there is displayed the perfect justice of God? <coughs> Yet Paul says, Romans 3.26, God did it to demonstrate his justice so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, you could go on and on, but do you see the basic point? how utterly counterintuitive the cross is. And therefore, as Christians, we never trust our assumptions and presuppositions about how reality is. True justice, love, power, wisdom, glory are nothing like what we think. And neither is the Lord. He's nothing like what we'd imagine him to be like. And therefore, we must test all by the cross. And that, the great reformer Martin Luther said, should be the rule for all our thinking. Crooks probat omnia the cross tests all or as he said elsewhere crux sola es nostra theologia the cross alone is our theology because if you try to think of God without the cross you are thinking of an idol in fact you are thinking of the devil because it is the cross that marks the divide between the Lord who rules in love and the devil who would merely dominate by fear. It is the cross that marks off gospel thinking from the doctrine of demons, however dressed up that may be. So let's test all by the cross, everything. So when thinking, what is God like? Look at the cross. Is he loving? Look at the cross. Is he powerful? Well, yes, but don't think you know what his power is until you've looked at the cross. That's power. When thinking, what is real love like? Don't look to Hollywood. Look to the cross. What is sin? Look to the cross and you see what sin really is. 
You see, so easily the cross, don't you find this? It could just become this kind of boring habit. So we become anaesthetized to it, shock. And so the temptation is, when you kind of go, yeah, we've all kind of done the cross, got bored of that now. And so the temptation is, let's try to freshen up the cross. How? Chuck on buckets of blood. Talk about a lot of gore. That will shock people. And that's freshened up the cross. And that was Mel Gibson's approach, basically, in The Passion. But the Bible never does that. The Bible is actually surprisingly quiet about the physical sufferings involved. And in fact, the thing is, the gore can actually detract from the cross if you just major on that, because it can make this cross like any other cross. Which it absolutely is not. This is not just a common criminal execution. Now you see, it is the meaning, the purpose of the cross that is far more shocking than the mechanics of crucifixion. Okay, Let's think then, first of all, about how the cross will shape our evangelism. Let's think about that first. How the cross shapes our evangelism. And to take us into this, let's have a think about uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and his character, the Madman. Now, if you know anything about Nietzsche, you'll know Nietzsche spent the last decade of his life um, in nappies in a psychiatric clinic, which kind of puts you on to the point, he's the Madman. Okay? He wants you to know, he, he's the Madman. Anyway, in 1882, Nietzsche wrote a passage, a very famous passage, in which he had his character, the madman, run out into the marketplace and shout, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we not ourselves become gods simply to be worthy of it because we've killed God? Later on that same day, he goes on, the madman entered various churches and there sang a funeral song because God had died. Led out and quietened, he is said to have retorted each time, what are these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of a dead God? Now, Nietzsche's point was that God had been rejected by modern man, been killed by rationalism and science. And, of course, that's now generally thought to be how Western intellectual history went after Nietzsche, that he was right. God is dead. And so there's no place for belief in him today. So God has been killed by science. Science has simply left no room for God to be necessary. God has been killed by the Holocaust. The, all the evils of the last century simply don't allow room for a just and loving God. Now, that's a big one today, isn't it? With all the chaos and absurdity around us. How can there be a God? God is dead. But, whilst Nietzsche meant God is dead to be the end to all faith, for the Christian, God is dead is where our faith begins. For you see, it is the dying God on the cross 
who is the true and living God. And in that way, the cross opens up whole new evangelistic possibilities for us. So, let's say someone comes up to you and says, all right, you're a Christian. Thing is, I don't believe in God. What should you say to them? Which God don't you believe in? Which God? You say you don't believe in God. Tell me, which God do you not believe in? And then, almost however they respond, you can say, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. That God sounds rubbish. Yeah, definitely reject him. I believe in the crucified God. And you see, when you present the cross, there they will see a God they've never imagined in their wildest dreams. Because they imagine a God who wants them to be good. Yeah? You say, no, here's a God who dies because you're bad. Totally different. So the God they think they've rejected is nothing like the God you can present. And so the cross frees us in our evangelism. We know where to take these conversations. Where shall I go in this conversation? Take him to the cross. That's going to change everything. You know, where shall I take this conversation? To the cross. Is, is suffering the, their problem? How can good God allow suffering? Take them to the cross. See suffering there. Well, there's another way in which the cross impacts our evangelism. The cross provides our motivation. First of all, on the cross, simple point, but how profound, on the cross we see how much God loves what lengths he will go to in order to win back the unbeliever. And so, if you find yourself feeling sluggish about evangelism, look to the cross. This is how passionate the Lord is about winning back unbelievers. But there's another way in which the cross impacts our motivation. Have a look at Psalm 73 with me. Psalm 73. Okay, you there? Psalm 73. Now, basically, you see, verse 3, Asaph, who writes it, is envious of the arrogant unbelievers when he just sees what a lovely life they've had. How they always seem to be carefree, surrounded by pleasures. It's lovely. And so he starts thinking, verse 13, well, perhaps it's not worth it, being a believer. But then, verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Now, do you see, he's full of doubts, wondering... How come unbelievers have such a cushy life? I'd like that. 
Everything changes when he goes into the temple sanctuary. So what does he see there to change him? Well, what would happen in the temple sanctuary? The sanctuary was the place where the animals were sacrificed. That's where all those lambs and bulls and rams were killed. And so Asaph would have seen the rivers of blood and remembered the Lord's fury at sin. Just so, when we look to the cross, there we see the Lord's anger at sin definitively displayed. See, on the cross we see not only the Lord's love for unbelievers. Look, this is what he's done to win them back. We also see his anger at them. This is what they deserve. Do you see, it's a powerful double motivation for evangelism. Feeling sluggish in your evangelism? Look at the cross. That's the cross in our evangelism. Let's move on. Think about the cross in our personal lives. Okay? What does the cross do to my motivation in living as a Christian? To uh, my relationship with the Lord? To my feelings? What does the cross have to say about all that? Well, the first thing the cross does is to reveal, of course, the true horror of sin. If you take sin lightly, look again at the cross. Because on the cross we see the real consequence of sin. Now, that is the nail to puncture any pride. Because however brilliant you think you are, however fantastically you think you've done, that is the Lord's verdict on you as a sinner. Damned by God's wrath. That is what you deserve. And so, the cross strips us of any confidence in ourselves. Now, in Nietzsche's godless society, having killed God, today, self-confidence is the cardinal virtue, isn't it? That's what you hear in all Hollywood trash. Believe in yourself, look to your heart, look for the hero within, blah, blah, blah. That's the cardinal virtue today, not for the Christian. The cross annihilates all self-confidence as we see God's verdict on us. And it does so so kindly, strips all that confidence in ourselves away so that we might have an unshakable confidence elsewhere, outside ourselves, not based on ourselves in the one hanging there on the cross. Now here's the marvel of it all. You see, if we have to have confidence in ourselves, emotionally you'll be up and down like a yo-yo. Because one day you feel good, the next day you don't. One day you've been good as gold and helped 20 grannies across the road. The next day you, well, who knows what you've done, you sinned and fluffed it from dawn till dusk. So should your confidence before the Lord follow your feelings and your performance? Should it? 
Well, naturally, of course, it does. And without grabbing ourselves by the scruff of the neck and giving ourselves a stern talking to, that's how we naturally think. But we yo-yo in and out of God's favour. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You know, he loves me? Why? Good quiet time. Helped 80 grannies across the road today. I was nice to that idiot. He loves me not? Why? Got drunk last night. And so how I'm feeling, how I'm doing, have become the grounds of my confidence. But the cross says, damn your feelings. Damn your performance. For sinful people like us, there are no grounds for any self-confidence before the Lord. On the cross, we are stripped of it all and condemned. Now, why did Jesus ever go to the cross if a quiet time could do the trick instead? If somehow you, you can actually please him a bit more by praying a bit more. Why did Jesus go to the cross? You see, Bible time is there to lead us to the cross. We're not somehow earning favour with God by doing that. And so the cross leaves us utterly without anything to boast about in ourselves. And it does so that we might have a status before the Lord that is entirely independent of how we've performed. Do you remember the animal's death in Genesis 3? How Adam and Eve didn't do anything. Instead, the Lord sacrificed an animal and used the skin to clothe them. Well, just so, the Father sacrificed his Son and then clothes us with the skin of Christ. And so we appear before God the Father. Yes, whilst we're sick in our hearts, wicked intentions bubbling up in my heart, yet I appear before God the Father, clothed in Christ. How does God the Father view me right now? Failure though I am, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased because I'm clothed in Christ. Not because I've done well. Think about the Passover. Do you remember the blood outside the house? Now what if some of the um, Mr. and Mrs. Jacobson hiding in the house had said, oh, to really help things out, all right, we've got the blood outside, but let's be really extra good as well inside the house. What's that going to do? That's not going to help them be a little less killed. Do you see, all the security is outside themselves. It's not on their performance. It's the blood that does it all. Not their behaviour. Which means, my friends, do you feel far from God? Do you feel you've not lived as you should? Well, of course you haven't. But as Jesus said, the healthy have no need for a doctor. He came for those who are sick. So are you a failure as a Christian? Great! 
good. Because it is when you most keenly feel the condemnation for your sin that you can most revel in what it is to be a Christian. A sinner, black-hearted, clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61 verse 10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with a garment of righteousness. He has covered me with the robe of salvation. So the next time you're asked how you're doing in the Christian life, you can say, how am I doing? I know that in me lives nothing good at all. But I was crucified with Christ. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's Paul in Galatians 2. No self-confidence at all does he have. Total confidence because of Christ. A righteousness we will never have in our hearts. Covers, clothes, surrounds, envelops us. And we simply trust Christ. So, we do not look to our hearts, our feelings or our performance to know how we stand before the Lord. Your heart will lie to you. We don't even look to ourselves to see how much we're trusting Christ. Have you ever done that kind of thing? You're going to go, oh, yeah, okay, so it's all about trusting Christ. Am I trusting him enough? What's the problem with that? You've just turned faith into the one thing you've got to do. The one, so you're asking, am I doing faith enough? Totally irrelevant. It, faith is not a thing you do that pleases God on the basis of which he saves you. It is God's blood. It is Jesus' shed blood on the cross alone that saves you. And you simply receive that. That's faith. Accepting that. Free gift. Not looking to my heart to see, am I trusting enough? Looking to Christ. There is all our righteousness. Now, doesn't that bring a smile to your face? But let me put it this way. Let me ask you a question. What is, what is the fastest killer of joy? What's the thing that will kill joy quickest? I'll tell you, it's not hard times. It's introspection. We live in the most self-obsessed, introspective age I think the world has ever seen. And I believe it's the culture of morbid introspection that is fueling the growing, spreading problem of depression. The cross is the Christian's ode to joy. And I tell you, when the darkness comes for you, here 
in the cross is music so joyous it has the power to drive away every gloom and so when your heart feels cold when your body closes you down when your emotions imprison you what do you do? you fight with God's word for perspective that whatever I face whatever I feel this is the bigger picture I do not depend on myself I do not trust my heart no, I have been taken utterly unworthy from the pit to the throne of heaven now joy is something you cultivate and if you can so shape your daily perspective that you know this before anything else I promise you you will have a joy that can overcome death and then you'll see you'll have a whole new motivation let me read you something from um, a great hero of mine the ever farting Martin Luther now Martin um, had a great friend um, called Philip Melanchthon and Philip uh, Martin's younger pal he was sort of a timid sort and he often wondered you know oh you know how am I doing with the Lord today oh, am I okay with the Lord today do you know what Luther's answer to him was it wasn't a now come on work a bit harder man then you'll be okay no Luther said your problem Philip is you don't sin enough if you sinned a bit more you'd be more aware of your sin and therefore you'd know there's no point depending on yourself you must only depend on Christ's turning blood here's what he said Luther said to Philip Melanchthon Philip be a sinner and sin boldly but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly for he is victorious over sin, death and the world as long as we're here in this world we have to sin we're just going to this life is not the dwelling place of righteousness but as Peter says we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells it is enough Philip that by the riches of God's glory we have come to know the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. No sin will separate us from the Lamb, even though we commit fornication and murder a thousand times a day. Do you think that the purchase price that was paid for the redemption of our sins by so great a Lamb is too small? Pray boldly, for you too are a mighty sinner. You think your sin's too great? Is your sin greater than Christ's blood? No. So do you see, Luther refuses to allow our performance to be in any way the grounds of our confidence before God. Instead, Luther sees when we know Christ has so loved us and accomplished everything necessary for our salvation what do you do? you spontaneously rejoice in Christ and love him 
Now that's the heart of holiness. Not kicking yourself to try to love him so that you might earn something from him to achieve something no loving spontaneously because of how he's first loved you now hearing these truths of the gospel doesn't your heart warm to the Lord doesn't your heart thrill to the sheer wonder of the gospel when you hear it don't you love Christ more when you hear these things Now when Luther preached this good news against the corrupted religion of medieval Roman Catholicism, Rome replied by saying, all right Luther, that that sounds very nice, but it doesn't work, what you're saying. See, Luther, you're saying that even though you're actually sinful in your heart, God treats you as if you're righteous, as righteous as Christ. That's what you're saying, Luther. And Luther said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And they said, well, that's just God pretending then, isn't it? You're actually sinful, but God pretends you're righteous. That is, Luther, a legal fiction. And surely, if that's how it is, Luther, you're just not even going to bother even trying to stop sinning because you're righteous whatever you do. Why even bother? But if you were to transfer funds to my bank account, you're very welcome to do that if you'd like. If you were to transfer funds to my bank account, would that be a banking fiction? No, it's a gift. Now that money belongs to me. And you see, that's how it works. And the charge that it leads to not bothering with how we live, that's always dogged faithful preaching of the gospel. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul says? Romans 6 verse 1. What should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Clearly some people thought that's what would happen. Paul's preaching grace so strongly, people just go, ah, might as well sin then. Because God will forgive it. But... Do I really care less about my sin because of how securely I'm loved? Do I really just not care? Say, ah, fine, I'll go off and sin because I'm securely loved. Is that how it works? No. Absolutely not. I hate my sin more because of how it reeks in the face of such love. It's a bit like being in a marriage. Now, I'm in a great marriage. Um, I have, you see, I'm a fantastic husband, but occasionally I, I, I fluff things a little bit. And when I do, very rarely, um, my amazing wife, Beth, she, she's so quick to forgive me. She just, she's not a grudge harbourer at all. She very quickly forgives me. She's got into the practice. And, and so, now, does it make it easier for me to say, hey, on the way home tonight, I might as well stop in at a prostitute's because, hey, she loves me securely. Does it make it easier for me to do that? Absolutely not. 
No, it's because of how securely I'm loved. There's no way I want to spit in her face by doing that. If she didn't love me securely, then, then the temptations come more strongly. <laughs> but do you see, it's because she loves me so securely, there's no way I want to do that. So it is with the free grace of God. That's the cross in Christian living. The cross kills all pride and works, throwing us onto the free, absolutely free mercy of God. And when it does that, the cross kills all gloomy religiosity and gives us pure joy because I'm not earning anything anymore. And I wonder if you should take that away this afternoon as a litmus test for yourself. Am I joyful? Because if you're not, it's because you haven't quite grasped or you've forgotten the cross. Paul makes the command, be joyful always. Because you can be with this gospel. On that note, I want to I turn, right as we finish, to the last way in which we're going to see how the cross can shape us each way. What the cross does to suffering. Now, some of you, uh, I, I don't know, some of you um, might have suffered very seriously in the past. Some of you might be going through suffering bereavement now. Um, if you haven't really suffered in life yet, don't worry, you will. So what does the cross mean for the hard times? Well, the first thing the cross means here is, as Christians, we are going to suffer. Turn with me to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. Somewhere in the New Testament. Yeah. It's sort of close-ish to the end. 1 Peter 4. And this is the Apostle Peter writing in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, don't close that yet. Now, the first thing to spot here, Peter doesn't think that joy and suffering are mutually exclusive. He says rejoice in your sufferings. So, you see, for the Christian, to suffer is not a strange thing at all. It is a key part of fellowship with Christ. So, do you want to identify with Christ? Do you want to be like Jesus? Then you must be like the Jesus who suffered. See, Christ is our forerunner and we follow Christ through suffering to glory. And actually, Peter's not preaching what he can't practice. In Acts 5, you get to see, with the other apostles, they walk away from being flogged, <coughs> rejoicing, 
because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the dear name of Jesus. Now, Peter's human. It wasn't that the flogging didn't hurt. It was that their desire to be like Jesus was stronger than their desire to save their own backs. Now you see, like everything we're seeing about the cross, this is so counterintuitive. We thank God that we don't suffer. They thank God that they do. They consider it a privilege to participate in the sufferings of Christ because they know that through their sufferings they become more like Christ. And that's what they want. It's deeply challenging, but it's also very comforting. Have a look on at verse 14. 1 Peter 4, 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, <laughs> instinctively, what do we think? Instinctively, we think that if we suffer, somehow God must have abandoned us. Yeah? Hard times, God's not looking after me. Peter says it's not like that. When you suffer for the name of Christ, he has not abandoned you. In fact, your suffering is a token of how certain it is that you will rise to see the light of glory. See what he says. The spirit resting on you in your sufferings is the spirit of glory. Your sufferings as a Christian are proof that the Father loves you as a true child and cares so much for you that like a good father, he wants to discipline you. And then you'll rise to see the light of glory. God uses suffering to refine our faith. And so, if suffering is God's way of shaking off our selfish independence and making us more like Christ, more holy, more dependent, then surely it should encourage all those who genuinely want to be like Jesus. If we really hate suffering that much, it only betrays that we prefer our own comfort to his will. But the cross has more to say about suffering than that. Because the cross is relevant to all suffering. So maybe you haven't suffered for the name of Christ, but the cross is relevant to all suffering. See, sometimes it's not so obvious why things are tough. You know, an accident happens, sickness comes upon you, any number of problems can hit, and it can seem utterly meaningless. You know, pure blind fate. And we've seen that's why so many people reject the existence of God. You know, God can't love me and let this happen. The cross changes all that. You see, on the cross, Please understand this. We see the definitive moment of history in which suffering is clearly shown. And it is innocent suffering in that greatest moment of suffering, a spiritual suffering beyond the nails that's innocent. 
But in that darkest moment of world history, of greatest suffering, of greatest innocent suffering, we do not see an event about which God does not care or which he cannot stop. No, we see there on the cross a suffering in which God is intimately involved. He's the one suffering. And why does he allow it? Why does he allow the suffering of the cross? In fact, why does he ordain the suffering of the cross? Because through it, he will bless his world. Now, of course that doesn't explain, doesn't mean that we will always be able to understand why we're allowed to go through the particular sufferings that we'll each face. But the cross gives us the principle. The Lord knows what he is doing in allowing innocent suffering. And if he knew what he was doing on that darkest day, he knows what he's doing on every day. Through suffering, he seeks to remove suffering. Through death, he conquers death forever. See, the Creator God has a purpose to bless his creation. And so through the cross, we see the basic structure of reality that there is no senseless suffering. The Lord uses it. We see in the cross, the Lord only allows suffering so that he might bless. Which means, friends, however inexplicable and horrendous what we face might be, we will never, never lose anything by suffering. For a time, it will feel as though we do. But the cross is our guide. Through suffering, God will only bring greater blessing. And so, Christians, we cannot lose. You know, when, when you face death and suffering, it's tempting to rage and despair. That's okay, that's understandable. But there is a better way. For when we turn to the cross, we see there, even in our very darkest hours, is cause for true joy. Our Heavenly Father uses suffering to bless us even more. And that's the lesson of the cross here. Which means we can confidently and genuinely love the Lord, trust Him, and obey Him. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death when we meet. For we cannot lose. That is the ever scandalous cross. And just some of the ways it can change our thinking, our speaking, our living. Some of the ways it can encourage us and make love and peace and joy bubble up in our hearts.
The great 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards once said, if any man could disprove this gospel, then he should sit down and weep. For it would be the most dreadful calamity that could happen to the world to have a glimpse of such truth and then for it to melt away in the thin air of fiction. And so can I encourage you every day to remind yourself of the cross. You know, my heart certainly, our hearts, are incapable of imagining such good news. Of imagining such could be true. And so if we don't refill our vision with a cross each day, we'll imagine such things can't be the case. And then the sad little religion of our hearts will take over and all will be drudgery and gloom. So keep bringing it back. Let the cross test all. Make the cross your theology and test everything by it. Let's pray. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Saviour's name. Our Lord, we thank you for the cross. Thank you for so justly punishing our sin. Thank you for condemning us there so that we might have all confidence before you in Christ. And thank you for revealing yourself to be so utterly different to all that our hearts would have thought you to be. Help us, we pray, to make the cross our theology and so to love and trust you in all that we face. In Jesus, our great Lamb's name. Amen. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House, Oxford, invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy Union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of Union and support our ministry, visit www.viola.gy.